Have you ever wanted something so bad that you would do almost anything to get it? Might have been a house, might have been a car for you guys, ladies. I try to think of an example for you, and all I can think of was a pair of shoes. <laughs> something so bad that you would do anything to get it, and almost it was as, almost as if there was no price too great for you to get it because the desire for you to have it was that, was that strong. I've never... Um, personally engaged in an auction, but I have watched a few over the years. It's always interesting to me to see some folks who are bidding on an item in an auction and, um, and, and see the, the frustration on their face because you know that they have come into that auction probably with some sort of price limit, how much they're going to pay for something, and someone else was bidding against them, and, and, that, and so the, the price is getting higher and higher and higher, and they're feeling that inward tension of, I really wanted this item, I really wanted it, but oh, the price is getting really out of control. How many have seen that? You know, you've seen that sometime. And then also there's this thing called Black Friday that I'm not sure whose bright idea that was, but Black Friday, which comes after Thursday uh, of Thanksgiving, and, you know, it's always been a mystery to me because everything goes on sale and we see people who want something so bad that they camp out for hours in front of Walmart or Target or an electronic store just to get a shot at getting that one thing that they want so bad that they would give up a night's sleep. Hello? would give up a night's sleep just, just to get it. They would wait in the cold. they put tents out there, and, you know, and they would do anything to get this one item. And don't look at me like that. I've seen some of you guys on the news doing that. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, as much as I love electronic gadgets and fun stuff like that, there is no item that I want bad enough to cause me to sleep in a tent in front of Best Buy for 24 hours. Is there anybody with me on that? All right. But I do remember... Something I really, really, really wanted. It was on, in, uh, in, on a night, a cool night of August, actually a cool night of August, 1973, at a camp meeting in northern Missouri, where there was a stunningly beautiful young lady who strutted across the platform to take her place at the piano to play for the service. And I looked at her and I said, I want that. <laughs> and whatever it takes to figure it out, I'm going to get that one way or another. And here we are 40 years later, and I still want that right there. Even when she brings home a pig, I still want that. If there is any message on Easter, and there are many messages on Easter, if there's any message on this Resurrection Day, and when I just... Take a moment and sit back and think about it and try to distill all the stuff that we talk about, all the scriptures that flood our minds, all the things we think about. If I tried to put it in like three words, what is the real meaning of Resurrection Day? And I think it's this, God wants you. God wants you. And he wants you so bad there is no price there was no price too great to pay for you. How many of you are thankful for that today? If you're like me, you wonder, why would he even want me? Does he really know me? Why would he even want me? Why would he desire a hopeless, helpless, ungodly wretch of a human like I am? And yet the Bible makes it clear that he would stop at nothing. Not only to get you, but to keep you. Hello? Hello? 
and to gloriously bring you faultless and blameless before his throne for all eternity. Now that, my friends, is a reason to celebrate Easter. If you go home today and you eat a lovely meal with your family or whatever, I just want you to remember, if you remember nothing else about today, just remember I am celebrating this day because God wants me. Say it with me. God, come on, with passion, say it. I want you to turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. And this is the perfect day to talk about this passage where Paul gives us understanding about the death of Christ on the cross and the life that comes to us because of his death, all because he wants you. My purpose this morning, if you'll stay with me for just a few minutes, uh, my purpose this morning is to once again allow us to see through the word of God the power of his death and the power of the life that he gives. And for us to be reminded that how, how important his death is to us, but also how vital his resurrection life is. And oh, what a wonderful representation we have of this this morning with the baptism service. And between the two services today, there's a total of 19 people going through the waters of baptism. Come on, can you praise the Lord for that today? Buried to the old life, raised in resurrection power to the new. Romans chapter 5, I'm starting at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Note the word death, because I want us to see the power of the two things that happen here. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled because of his death, we shall be saved by his life. C.S. Lewis calls God the transcendental interferer, the transcendental interferer. And this is what he said about God when he, C.S. Lewis, was trying to run from God. He said, we resent his intrusion into our privacy, his demand for our worship, his expectation for our obedience. And then Lewis says, why can't he mind his own business and leave us alone? To that, God instantly replies, we are his business, and he will never leave us alone. Before we become Christians, we perceive him to be a threatening rival. And C.S. Lewis continues, a rival who disturbs our peace, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority, and diminishes all of our self-importance. We too want to get rid of him. And that's why before, hear me, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. Don't miss that, church. Before we ever become a Christian, we think him to be our enemy. We think him to be against us when really he is our rescuer trying to set us free. And he comes and intrudes on every part of our life. How many are thankful for it today? There was an article printed in a California newspaper that I want to tell you about. The story is absolutely incredible and, and dramatic. And it so illustrates what I'm trying to say to you here this morning. The rescue was done by a truck driver. 
There was a woman who pulled into a California state rest stop. Having been on a long journey, she pulled into the rest stop to, to use the bathroom, but when she left her car, she failed to lock her car as she went on to the restroom. And while she was in there, some man who had ill intentions or bad intentions, we don't know if it was for the purposes of, of, of rape or to kidnap her, he snuck into the back seat of her car and crouched down while she was in the restroom. From a distance, several, several yards away, quite a ways away, this truck driver in his 18-wheeler sees this man get in the back of her car. And only seconds later, just as he sees it, he sees that she is now coming out of the bathroom, gets in her car, and starts to take off, not knowing that her assailant was in the back seat of her car. All of a sudden... This 18-wheeler starts pulling out, screeching out, and starts chasing this woman in her car and going after her. And she has no idea why this maniac in the 18-wheeler, this truck driver, is right on her tail and chasing her. She's thinking, what on earth is he doing? What kind of trouble am I in? How difficult is this going to be? He's right on the tail of this woman's car as she's going 70 or 80 miles an hour. And the truck is literally going that fast just to stay right behind her. She has no idea what his intentions are. And thinking the truck driver is out to harm her, this woman who could not reach her cell phone, she's frantically trying to figure out how she gets out of this predicament. She takes her car and pulls right into the next gas station, runs out of her car into the gas station and pleads with the person at the gas station to call the cops. Well, guess what? The truck driver jumps out of his truck, grabs the man in the back seat, pins him down and holds him until the police come. Her problem was this. She thought the truck driver that was following her was her enemy. All the while... The truck driver was her deliverer to set her free from the enemy that was so close to her and was about to destroy her. You getting the parallel this morning? You see, the reason why God is on your bumper today, the reason why he's chasing after you so ferociously and coming after you, he's trying to save you, dear friend. And the reason why you are getting all upset with God is because he's tailgating you and you're calling all of your friends trying to figure out what's wrong with my life. Why am I so miserable? Why am I so upset? You're wondering why you can't do the stuff that you've always done anymore and have any peace. It's because God is on your bumper. It's because he's, try, he's ready to whip out the devil and set you free from your true assailant. But until you recognize that the cross was done by you, until you recognize that God will seem like an interferer. He will seem like an intruder. He will appear to be your enemy when in fact he is your rescuer. And that's what Romans 5 is talking about if you'll follow me. It takes us to this point of seeing how truly important, really important the work of Jesus is. As we look in two parts today at this sermon, at the death of Jesus and the resurrected life of Jesus and how the two of them work together. Follow me, please. Romans 5.10 again says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. History bears out the fact that Christ died. That is a fact of history. When you begin to realize not only that Christ died, but when you see that Christ died for my sins... That's a completely different thing. 
then it's not just history. When you understand Christ died for my sins, that's the gospel. That's the good news. For many of us here today in this room, and I know it's true, some of us know the historical Jesus. You are probably here. You've probably come to church today to celebrate the fact that Christ died and rose again. And you know that historically, but you don't yet know who the gospel Jesus is. He died, that's history. He died for me, that's the gospel or the good news. And there's all the difference in the world between Jesus died and Jesus died for me. The former is an event. The latter is the application of that event. And to see it more clearly, let me back up in this chapter to verse 6, if you're following along with me in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much Oh my goodness, sometimes I read this and my heart just explodes and I'm trying to keep contained here, all right? Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do you get that this morning? The order of things? It was planned that Christ would die long before you ever lived. Before you ever showed up. That plan was in place. I think for years, I don't think, I know, for years I misunderstood the timeline of the work of Christ. And it's important that we understand it here. I think I always thought of it this way. Creation, the fall of man, and then the atonement, or Christ's death on the cross. When really I had it backwards. Jesus already died before the foundations of the world. Meaning, that plan was already set in place before the foundations of the world then the creation, then the fall of man, then the plan was executed that was put in place before the foundations of the world. That's why so often you'll hear us say, he looked down the annals of time long before you ever thought of, long before anything about you was ever here, and he saw already what you were going to do, every sin you would commit, everything that would happen in your life that was against God, and he said, I'll pay for it now. Hallelujah. That ought to cause somebody to say, praise the Lord today. The death of Christ was his mark of proving his love to us. But to truly understand what we have in the death of Christ and the value of his death, we had to understand the character of the people for whom he died. And we've just read it. Let me remind you. It called us three things in the scripture we just read. It said he died for the helpless in verse 6. He died for the ungodly. It was also in verse 6. And he died for sinners or enemies in verse 8. Helpless, ungodly sinners. Helpless, ungodly sinners. Does that describe anybody in the house today? Helpless. Are you all awake or are you going to sleep back there? (laughs) Helpless, ungodly sinners. Another way of measuring God's love is to measure the depth of the condition us helpless, ungodly sinners for whom he died. Helpless, let me break it down quickly. Helpless means to totally be unable on our own to be who we need to please God. 
It's impossible for us. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how talented you are. I don't, think, I don't care how cute you are. None of that matters. It is impo- we are helpless to please God on our own. That means there is nothing in you, there is nothing in me to make God to like us. It means we don't have any capacity. We don't have any resource. We don't have any asset to make us appealing to God. I hate to break that to you today, but it's the truth. And for you to come to Christ, you need to understand your true condition. Get this down and hear me carefully. When it comes to understanding salvation, no man can make himself a Christian. You can go to church. You can even pay your tithes. You can sing in a choir. You can play in an orchestra at church. You can do all the right things. That does not make you a Christian. Have you gone to sleep on me this morning? That does not make you a Christian. No man on his own can make himself a Christian. It is only a miracle and an act of God when you become a Christian. You cannot make yourself a Christian. It is the Lord. It is God who makes you a Christian. It is God who is the one who changes you. Because once you think you can do it, then you are no longer helpless. But the Bible tells us that our condition is helpless. We have nothing in us to please God. The second thing he says is that we are by nature ungodly, which simply means we are unlike God. To be ungodly means that the image of God upon us has been defaced, that the masterpiece of the work of God in creation has been marred. We are ungodly. And then he says, and we have become sinners or even enemies. Those words are interchangeable, enemies of God. Man in his nature is actively opposed to serve God. We are are against him. And man loves himself more than he loves God. In fact, when the Bible puts it down that we were enemies, one of the things we need to understand, and we need to understand this about ourselves, we're not only just enemies, we are public enemy number one. And these were the people that he died for. Helpless, ungodly sinners. But look at verse 7 and 8. For one would hardly die... For a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul was saying is this. A good man might die for a good man. That's possible. Even that's probably a stretch. But let's bring it right down to where we live. Let me make it a little more practical. I love my two children. And I think they know this about me because I think I've said this on occasion or two. But if it ever came down to me having to die for them, for my kids, I would do that in a heartbeat without ever batting an eye. Not even, not even I wouldn't have to think about it. Not even a question. Because they've got so much more of life ahead of them. First of all, I think that's one of the components God puts in us as parents when he gives us children. This overwhelming love for that child when, when God gives them to you. But they've got so much more life ahead of them than I do. And I so desire for my children to have a life that's rich and full and complete. How many parents know exactly what I'm talking about? Come on, you know what. And I, and I would do the same thing for my wife without question. It wouldn't even, wouldn't even be a question for me. But Paul ramps it up here. Let me pose it to you this way. Think about somebody who just said something very unkind about you on Facebook. Made you angry. Come on, be honest. Have you ever read Facebook and just gotten flat out angry about something? Oh, come on, you're not telling the truth. Three of you. You know where liars go, right? Okay. Think about somebody who just said something on Facebook that made you angry. Would you die for them? 
You might want to shake their teeth out, but you wouldn't die for them. What about somebody who gossiped about you? Who said something that was sharing information they really shouldn't be sharing? Would you die for them? What about somebody who did you dirty in a financial deal? Really took advantage of you? You'd die for your children, but would you die for someone who financially took advantage of you? Would you die for someone who slandered your name at work? Said something very unkind to all the other people in the workplace about you? Would you die for that boss who keeps yelling at you? But yet God takes it to an even greater level than that. And he says, I've not only died for those who have mocked me, slandered me, taken advantage of me. I've died for those. I will die for those who have killed me. And here's what he's saying. He didn't die for good people. He died for those who were in the worst condition that could possibly be. Let's say, what if I had given money to someone in need? And then I discovered they were responsible for murdering my son. God says, not only am I going to give to those who murdered my son, I'm going to, this is going to be so crazy. Not only, not only would I do that, I'm going to make them part of my family. You didn't get that. He says, not only am I going to give to those who murdered my son, I'm going to make them part of my family. How insane is that? Think of the love of God. Think how bad he really wants you. He says, you're responsible for murdering my son. But not only am I going to give you salvation and redeem you, I'm going to make you part of my family. That's the amazing love of Jesus who wants you today. Come on, put your hands together and thank him for that. And that's why Paul says, this is the demonstration. This is, how Paul, this is how Paul is proving God's outrageous love. He says, we are helpless, ungodly sinners. Nothing appealing about us at all. And yet, here is God dying for those in the worst possible condition. Here's the truth. You caused all the damage. You created all the problem. And God came along and paid your bill. It's happened to Becky and I a couple of times over the years. We've been sitting at a restaurant, and typically I'm the one who's ordered more food than I should have, including dessert, cheesecake. And um, we get the bill, or we get ready to leave, and I ask the waiter for the bill. And I've had, that have, had it happen where the waiter looked at me and said, uh, sir, it's all been taken care of. I go, what? No, it's, it, it's all been taken care of. And I, I, did you see how much damage I did here? Both to your restaurant and to my body. Did you see that really? Yes, sir, I most certainly did. So where's the bill? Well, someone saw the two of you eating and paid your bill and and walked right out. I said, who? Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Okay, what about the appetizer? All covered. The, The entree? All paid for. And the cheesecake? Covered, completely covered. It's all covered and you don't pay a dime. You caused all the damage, but you can walk right out and receive the gift that was given for you. Can I pay the tip? No, sir. It's all been covered. That's the outrageous love of God. That's the outrageous grace of God who wants you. You caused all the damage. Put Jesus on the cross. God steps in, pays the bill, and says, all you have to do is accept what Jesus has done for you. Church, that's amazing grace. He says, you're justified. You're righteous. That's a miracle of God. And here's what he did. 
when you or I didn't even have sense enough to pursue him, when we didn't even know that our true assailant was in the back seat of our car, we didn't ask for God, we didn't pray to him, but he shows up and takes the people who caused him the most harm, which would be, that'd be me and you. He dies for us, brings us into his family, pays the bill, makes us brand new, all because he wants us. And why wouldn't we want that gift of salvation? Why, wouldn't, why would anyone want to turn that down? It's the gift that is waiting for all of us today. And it's a gift that you can cash in on, if I dare use the phrase. Do you know why when you walk into the drugstore or the grocery store that they put all those gift cards right there in front of you, typically right at the place where you, where you pay. You know why all those cards for iTunes and Chili's and, and Amazon and at the, you know why those are there? You know, when you're not sure what present to give someone, those gift cards are right there ready for you. You know why they make them so readily available? It's because last year, all these companies who do that report that a billion dollars worth of these gift cards were unredeemed. That's billion with a B. What they're banking on is that you'll lose it, forget about it, and now they're even trying to get legislation, I understand, to have an expiration date put on it that you've only got a certain amount of time to use it so that they win even more. So it goes like this. You get the gift card. You forget to cash it in. You forget uh, to get the blessing of the gift, and it gets lost or misplaced or, or forgotten about, and that's why they do it. That's why, the, uh, the, that's why this is a gift waiting for you to cash, on, cash in on today. Salvation is a gift that is for you. A gift that is for you. That, that iTunes gift card will not redeem itself. You've got to do something about it. You don't just keep it in your pocket. You don't just lose it. You've got to cash in on it. It's simply recognizing that you are a helpless, ungodly sinner, asking God who wants you to take you, redeem you, change you, and to work inside of you, and that is the power of his death. Hallelujah. I want to finish by now talking about the power of his life from our passage this morning. Go back with me to Romans 5.10. He says in the 10th verse, For if while we were enemies... This is the condition that we were in as public enemy number one. We were reconciled to God, put in right relationship, through the death of his son, gave us the gift card of his son. How much more? How much more having been reconciled in right relationship with God? And then he said this, which is not initial salvation. I want you to hear this carefully. How much more having been reconciled? We shall be saved by his life. We shall be saved by his life. There is power in the second part of this scripture that we have forgotten or maybe possibly not ever, not ever even seen before. The argument is in the two parts of this verse and it's so powerful and it's all linked on this expression much more. Did anybody here ever grow up as a Christian at some point you were afraid that you had committed the unpardonable sin? You're not going to admit it, are you? I grew up constantly concerned that as a Christian I wasn't pleasing God enough. That's why if you grew up like I did in the church, went running to the altar every Sunday night to pray through. How many remember those days? Not a bad idea. But we were constantly afraid 
that we were not pleasing to God, constantly in this mode of feeling like we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out. God loves us. He doesn't. God loves us. He's displeased with us. And that's the way I, I grew up. Anybody ever had the experience, and I think we've talked about this before, of thinking you've missed the rapture of the church? You know, I remember coming home, and you've heard me say this, and if nobody was there, I got on the phone and started calling all the saints. If Sister Blackburn were still here, I was good. If for whatever reason she was out doing her grocery shop and didn't answer the phone, I got panicked, really panicked. And so all these fears about the unpardonable sin or missing the rapture, and Paul gives us an old oh, church, I want you to hear this today. Just give me 10 more minutes. Oh, Paul gives us this last half of verse 10 that is totally liberating, and you need to listen to me carefully. He says, much more, which means get ready because this is even more intense than you being reconciled by his death. What could be more intense than being reconciled by his death? You will be saved by his life. What is he saying? He's saying if God did something so huge for us, when we were in the state of helpless, ungodly, and enemies, Paul said, if God saved you and died for you when you were public enemy number one, how much more will God do for you now that you are in the family of God? If God would die for you when you were an enemy, what do you think he's going to do for you now that you're in the family? If he was committed to getting you saved when you were an enemy and helpless, do you think he's going to do anything less for you now that you are his son or his daughter? Paul's argument is this, a kind of father would do more for his enemies than he would for his own children. In other words, those of you who worry every day about losing your salvation, God is saying this, it's not yours to lose, according to this scripture. In fact, he's guaranteeing your salvation. Even as he's giving you the Holy Ghost to convict you and bring you back into alignment every time you wander. Does that mean I think you are eternally secure? And the room goes stone cold quiet. Does that mean I think you are eternally secure? The answer to that is yes, as long as you choose to remain in him, walk by the mandate of the word of the Lord, and live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is guaranteeing your salvation. Somebody say amen for that today. I love guarantees. I love products where they say, no matter what happens, we guarantee this product is going to work or your money back. How many like guarantees? Especially when your kids are little and they can destroy anything. And then they get bigger and they destroy everything. <clears throat> and you take that thing back to the store and they ask you what's wrong with it. And you, you, know, you kind of shuffle and you look you know, a little embarrassed. You say, well, <laughs> the truth is we dropped it in the toilet. You know, Guaranteed, Mr. Smith, guaranteed. And you go, hallelujah, I can't believe it. And they replace it. And then two weeks later, you take the remains of it back. And they said, what happened? Well, Becky backed over with the car. That's what happened to it. No problem, Mr. Smith. It's guaranteed. We commit to give you a product that would work. As long as you're using our product, we're going to be sure that it works. I love those guarantees. Who loves guarantees here today? Come on. Let me tell you something, church. When you got saved, according to the scripture we've read this morning, you got a guarantee. 
a guarantee that came to you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you quickly to Hebrews 7 as I wrap this up for the fine print of your guarantee that we're gonna read quickly. Because the guarantee comes to you by none other than Christ Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21 says this. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You, Jesus, are a priest forever, which means he cannot die like the other priests. And this is the difference. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. The other priests died and could not continue in their work. But Jesus lives forever, and his work as a priest does not pass on to someone else. Which means, once he becomes your Savior, once he becomes your Lord, he cannot die, and he's on your team forever. Hallelujah. Verse 23. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever... His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. How many are thankful for a great high priest who is today interceding for you? He has been set apart for this task he is holy. He is raised above the heavens. He's not like the other priests that we had in, in the Old Testament. He does not offer sacrifices every day for the sins of, pe of people for this very reason. He offered one sacrifice once and for all. And that sacrifice is the guarantee of our life. This is the guarantee that he's going to get us home. Hallelujah. Just like it says in Jude verse 24. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Church, we ought to rejoice today in the fact that the God you met at this altar has committed to you. He is your guarantee. He's going to get you all the way to the throne of heaven. Hallelujah. Now will there be, no doubt, some bumps along the way? Uh-huh. How many of you had a few life bumps? I have. Will there be times that you try to wander off? But let me tell you something. God has this bounty hunter called the Holy Ghost who's going to come after you. Every time you think you're going to wander and go here and go there. And when you get off over on this place and that place and you try to go back to the life you lived without Christ, you're not even going to feel right because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Bless the name of Jesus. God's going to say this. He's not just turned his back on you. He's not just decided he's angry with you. He's going to say, wait, 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 wait. You're not leaving me that quick. I paid a price for you, and you are mine. You belong to me. And, I, and I've got to get you from this altar all the way to standing before God, and I can't have you going AWOL on me. The Holy Spirit is all around you saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, and get back in right relationship with God. He's going to guarantee this with his son, and the day you get saved, he's making a commitment to getting you all the way home. He's doing his part. Do I believe you can backslide? Sure. And you'd be a fool to do it. I believe that can happen. But you will have to make a conscious choice to remove yourself from the mighty grace of God that he has provided for you. You have a high priest ever making intercession and praying for you. He's committed to getting you home. The great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But then he says, but yet distance is no problem for him. He is praying for me right now.
right now. We've had it wrong for so long, church. We think God wants, us to, wants to get us to an altar, confess our sins, and once we do that, he somehow becomes this angry, abusive father once we become a Christian, telling us you're in, you're out, you're, in, you're good enough, you're not, you're in, you're all in and out. And Paul is saying to us through this scripture today, and I want you to go home and study it. If you think I've gone off my rocker, you go home and read it today. Paul is saying this, nonsense. He said, if he can get you to an altar and get you to the point of salvation, when you're his enemy, he's going to keep you as a son or daughter for the glory of his name. Church, that is the power of the death of the Lord Jesus, and that's the power of life in the resurrected Lord Jesus. The power of his death, reconciliation. The power of his life, saved forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bow your heads with me this morning. And I want no one leaving the room for the next few minutes. We'll dismiss in just a few minutes. I have to ask on a day like this, preaching a salvation message, having prayed diligently about this today, if there's not someone in the room, whether it's 1, 10, 20, or 30, who want to cash in that card today, that salvation card, it's a card of reconciliation, being made right with God through Jesus. And I can't think of a finer time than on Resurrection Day 2015. And I just want to know, who can I pray for today that says, Pastor, you have said something that has reminded me that I'm that person who's a helpless, ungodly enemy of God. I'm that, that's me. I've been public enemy number one. I thought God was my enemy while he was chasing me and never recognized that he was truly my redeemer. Is there anyone today who says, I'm ready to cash in on that card. I want new life in Christ Jesus. If so, just lift your hand very quickly so I can have a chance to pray with you today. Anyone in the room at all? I see one. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Bless you. Let's stand today, church. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your, your death and thank you for your life. I want us all to pray this prayer together. Just lift your hands with me and let's say this. Jesus, reconcile me by your death. I know that I'm helpless. I'm ungodly. I'm public enemy number one. But you died for me. So today, Jesus... I cash in the gift card. I receive you, Jesus. Come into my heart and change me. And today, you're going to guarantee that I'm going to meet you one day. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, let's put our hands together and bless him for his life.